So I'm Morgan, I'm from The Social Review, and we've also got... David, also from The Social Review. And we're lucky enough to be sitting down this afternoon with... Annalisa Dodds, <laughs> not from The Social Review, um, but I'm very pleased to be with The Social Review. I am a Labour MP for Oxford East, and I'm also a Shadow Treasury Minister. So, if you'd like to begin by explaining a little bit about what your work has been in the Shadow Treasury team, what you've been working on, and what your experience of the sort of policy making process has been. Yeah, sure. So, I, I did particularly work on tax actually within the Shadow Treasury team. I have to say, I really like talking about tax. Uh, not everybody does, but um, I think we need to talk a lot more about tax actually because when we look at some of the statistics, we see that those who are the best off have actually been paying less of their income in tax than the worst off people. Um, we see that there are some very peculiar anomalies in the tax system as well, generally ones which again benefit the best off people um, and don't benefit people who don't have resources um, or middle income people. Um, so obviously at the time of the last election we set out a whole range of different policies to try and deal with that inequality. Um, the fact that our tax system, in many ways, can't really be described as progressive anymore. Um, so I'm sure that people listening to this would know about the, the headlines, the policies that we were putting forward. Um, I suppose in particular we felt it was um, completely inappropriate to be continuing with the race to the bottom on corporation tax that we've seen the UK really spearheading. Um, we were told that reductions in corporation tax rates in the UK would lead to increased investment. They haven't. Um, and when I've talked to businesses, actually, it's things like business rates that are of much more of a concern than headline corporation tax rates. Um, so we uh, said that we would see a more, more sensible corporation tax rate. We wanted to have a, a general review of local taxation, obviously lots and lots of issues about um, council tax as well as business rates, um, have a more progressive approach to income taxation and to capital gains and also look at some of the anomalies with inheritance tax as well, one of the least understood taxes which is only paid by about 4% of estates and yet many many people think that they will be paying it. Um, so what yeah. do you think, you said that you don't think we have a, like a progressive tax um, regime, what, like what does what does the ideal tax regime look like to you and um, do you think that was what we had in the Labour Manifesto? Like what were your real highlights in the Labour Manifesto? Yeah, so I think we were moving towards that um, in the last Labour Manifesto to a more progressive system. I mean, we, we know, I mean, it, it's a kind of pretty obvious uh, principle of marginal utility that people who are on lower incomes tend to spend more of the money that they have. Um, now, <laughs> I suppose we could say from a purely economic point of view, well, if some people with larger incomes were then investing that money in productive capacity, then that might at least increase the size of the economic pie. But actually what we've seen, of course, is more and more wealth being held in assets, in housing in particular, in the British economy. Um, so we really need to have a change where actually some of that wealth is um, uh, and income is being recouped through the tax system. 
Um, so we need to use tax as a redistributive instrument. Of course, we also need tax to pay for public services as well. Um, it hasn't been doing that adequately. All the discussion about um, uh, whether we were all in it together um, uh, didn't really make sense when you looked at the tax cuts for the best off and for profitable companies that were pushed through by the, the coalition and the Tories in 2010. So, yeah. um, and how do, we, how do you think we sell, like, how do we make tax sexy? <laughs> and I guess this comes into the election where we obviously mm -hmm. went with the idea that 95% of people would face no tax rises. Do you think that's the right way to continue pushing it? Because it seemed there was a problem with people not really believing that. So might we be better off arguing for broader tax rises and, you know, coming up with something a bit different? Or do you think that kind of way of framing it, the 95% of the 5% is how we should continue going forward? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a frustrating debate a lot of the time um, during the general election, and there was quite a lot of confusion about things like marriage allowances and, you know, people thinking this would affect the pension system when it wouldn't have done, etc, etc. So um, I think, I guess, that the first thing that we need to do is make sure that we explain what our tax policies are, whatever they are, as clearly as possible. That's absolutely critical. Um, in terms of that 95% um, 5% division, um, I actually do think it's genuinely very unfair that those with the broadest shoulders are not paying in to the extent that um, certainly I would hope and actually you know, I've talked to quite a lot of people who are within that 5% who have said to me they'd be quite happy actually to be paying additional tax um, if it meant that public services were properly supported. Um, and I think we, we need to get into that space when we talk about tax. It's quite interesting some of what the Australian Labour Party have done. Now, of course, they haven't done fabulously well electorally recently. Um, there's a big argument over the drivers of that. Um, in fact, many of the, the people that I've talked to and listened to have said, well, it was partly because there were too many messages, and that's maybe something that we'll come back to later in the, the um, interview. But um, they were trying to say, well, look, let's kind of stop talking about tax as always a burden. Can we talk about the contribution that is made overall to actually providing public services that people need, schools, hospitals and everything else? And I think they did start to shift the dial on all of that, particularly talking about some of the big corporate cases where there have been you know, very wide scale avoidance and saying, well, we, we can't accept this anymore in a community where everyone is contributing. Um, so we I think we need to you know, think very carefully about some of the language that we used, whether it was, whether it was right, but also how we do that in the context of, um, unfortunately, increased conservative majority. Yeah. So I guess that kind of addresses the question of how to deal with people's sort of unwillingness to pay tax. Mm -hmm. But it seems like another problem we had was people not believing that we could fund all the things we said we were going to fund by just taxing the top 5%. Yeah. And that seems to be something that spread from, you know, both the public at large to some of the policy world. So the IFS was very critical of the idea that we could fund the level of change we were promising taxing just the top 5%. Uh, how, how do you think we challenge those ideas and make the case that we can do that? Yeah, I mean, I think actually part of that debate was around how we pay for long-term investment, essentially. So 
Um, we saw, and it, you know, it's very frustrating at the time, but we saw the Conservatives lumping in all forms of capital investment that we were proposing with consumption spending, so with the day-to-day, -day, you know, paying for public servants and, and services. Um, now, I think we might start to see a change around that debate into the future, because I think even the Tories now finally, you know, um, 10 years too late after just about every other comparable country has, has already changed, they're finally changing their approach as well and saying, well, there is an argument for exempting that capital spend from the other kinds of fiscal rules that we, we might want to adopt, um, from accepting that, you know, we can go to the capital markets for that funding, that that's not going to be leading to um, a liability for taxpayers into the future because it will be generative of additional economic activity. So I think that, you know, the Tories are shifting on that quite rightly. Now, of course, we've got to see the, the proof of the pudding. I'm not convinced that they really are going to be delivering on the kind of investment that they've promised. You know, let's, let's wait and see. I think the jury's really out on that. Um, but they're getting into that debate now, and I think that means that hopefully we won't have the kind of really sloppy um, a criticism of some of Labour's proposals that we saw before. You know, we saw, for example, also the Tories just taking all of Labour's proposed spend, putting it all together and then dividing it by the number of families and saying, there mm. you go, that's what your tax bill is going to be. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous, but it's what they did. And I still have Conservative MPs kind of making that point back to me. Um, but, you know, again, we, we, we've got to just be, be clear in, in pushing back and rebutting that into the future. Okay. And so you've talked about the need to make the tax system more progressive. Do you think the shape of the tax system also needs to change in terms of what we tax and how? Um, so I guess this is the question that probably you get asked a lot about wealth taxes or taxes on land yeah. or taxes on new forms of sort of economic activity. Yeah, well, I, I, I think we, we definitely need to debate all of those issues far more than we have until now. Um, again, I think we tried to open up the debate, particularly around land taxation at the time of the last general election, um, rather than having the serious national conversation that we need to have around that. We had nonsense push back at us about um, you know suggestions that you know, John McDonald was going to be taxing people's back garden and that kind of ridiculous stuff when, you know, that that was just, you know, eons away from what we were arguing for. And obviously, um, George Monbiot was written about, I mean, he, he um, bless him, he was surprised about the response that came to his um, kind of discussion paper around land value issues. Mm. Um, I wasn't particularly surprised because that often has been the response when we've tried to open up that debate. Um, so we, we do need to have a conversation, proper conversation nationally, I think, around, around that, you know, especially given the fact that our economy is so unequal, that we have so little investment going into um, more productive capacity as compared to assets, um, including land and obviously property as well. And we're a real outlier in, in the rest of Europe from that point of view. We, we've got to deal with it. Um, it's, it's a real drag, as far as I'm concerned, on our economic development, and, and it's something that's changed, you know, pretty substantially. If you look at bank lending, for example, into those different sectors of the economy, over just over the last 30 years. Um, so, yeah, we need we need to have that conversation. I mean, I would just add to the areas that you mentioned. I think 
you know, something else that the current government is demonstrably failing on is um, how we deal with new forms of working where we have um, essentially a tax system that doesn't map onto the employment rights system. Now, in some cases that might be to the benefit of working people if we're looking at, for example, um, people's intellectual property and whether, um, you know, if they're uh, the, the, their own boss, whether they can keep hold of that um, and not have it then used by an employer. Um, but equally, of course, we see a lot of abusive use of, um, you know, bogus self-employment and that kind of thing. Some of that is being pushed along by the tax system. And we, we've just kind of currently got sticking plasters being applied to this by the government. They're not really grasping this issue and trying to deal with it properly. And, and they need to in the long run. So do how do you think that IR35 will affect that kind of? Um... Yeah, well, exa exactly. The, the, so that that system, which which is already in existence, but that it, it's meant to 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 determine for tax purposes whether someone is um, essentially a self-employed contractor or an employee. Um, now, I th I think it's right that it's there because we've seen quite a lot of. Um, you know, kind of fiddling around with some of these categories to avoid tax and, you know, obviously we, we all are harmed by that because then we don't have sufficient funds to pay for the public services we all benefit from. Um, I suppose the one of the major concerns that I've had about the, the kind of rollout of that um, system and a new approach to it, first in the public sector but now particularly in the private sector, is that um, you, there seems to be some evidence, but you know we need we need to get um, more evidence on this, and and really need to get some data on it. We haven't got enough um, of it at the moment. There seems to be some evidence that some firms are just deciding they're not going to employ contractors anymore, and they're just going to go to big firms to provide services. Now, to me, that is an issue in the long run because it means that you know actually the social mobility that's often provided through the contractor system, flexibility. The, Kind of family friendliness of it sometimes, not always, um, that could be lost potentially unless it's much more carefully implemented. Yeah. So do you think the next Labour government, whenever it comes, hopefully sooner rather than later, might need to go beyond the kind of measures outlined in the current manifesto and in fact undertake a kind of overall complete overhaul of the tax system? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there are, I, th I think we will need to go further um, and we need to deal with some really pretty stubborn challenges as well around our tax system. I mean, one would be um, around the, the system of tax reliefs in the UK, where again, compared to other countries, um, we've got a relatively high volume of tax reliefs. They're not properly scrutinised. Um, it's quite interesting, I think, that in India, there's a schedule of tax reliefs that apparently is published alongside the budget so that everybody can look at them, they can work out, you know, are these appropriately targeted? We don't have anything like that in the UK at all. Um, and what evidence does exist suggests that, again, <laughs> surprise, surprise, they're not very progressive, you know, what a shock. So um, we need to, to deal with, with that, I think, in a much more transparent way. And we proposed that we would have a full review of those reliefs. Now, you know, I, I hope that we would be going further at the time of the next election, being more explicit around that, that policy space. Um, we also need to, I think, really get into the challenge of 
simplification because we have such a complicated tax system in the UK. Um, you know, it's hundreds upon hundreds of pages long in terms of overall the tax code. Um, that uh, needs to be dealt with because in the long run, you know, it creates anomalies, it creates a lack of certainty for business and for individuals. Um, and we've seen some measures to try and deal with that by government, but they've really not gone far enough. So, for example, the Office of Tax Simplification, as I understand it, is required to operate um, uh, by being tax neutral, right? So not, not making suggestions that would increase um, the revenue from taxation, you know, that, that strikes me as really, really peculiar. And if there's a tax simplification that would increase revenue in a way that's fair, um, then surely we should be looking at that and it should be possible for the, the simplification body to look at that. Yeah. One, one question before we sadly stop talking about tax. <sighs> um, so obviously we're rather deep in opposition at the moment. Um, mm. So you've been part of the Shadow Treasurer team. What do you think the kind of the shadow treasurer team should be doing in the next five years and in the, in the time we're in opposition to really back, maximize its role, make sure it's the most effective it can be? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we've we've got some immediate challenges within that. Um, you know, we all really hope it's not going to be as long as five years. Um, of course, unfortunately, it could be could be more than that, but uh, let's hope that it's less. Um, Obviously, we're, we're set to be um, at the end of the implementation period, so called for leaving the EU um, at the turn of this year. Now, there are some pretty big, you know, that's an understatement, economic challenges coming from that process. Uh, whether we're talking about um, kind of dealing with the, the, the legacy of funds that previously came from the EU, where we, we still don't know what's going to happen with structural funds. Um, we don't know how much in particular local control there'll be over those funds. You know, government could just decide to use it as a bit of a slush fund. Um, you know, very unclear around what will happen with their so-called shared prosperity fund. Um, we don't know what will be happening with customs processes. You know, a lot of these issues we'll need to work with the international trades, the shadow international trade team on. Um, but, you know, we currently have a government that has senior ministers actively briefing that the the only businesses complaining about their approach to Brexit are those in secular decline. Well, actually, you know, I think our advanced manufacturers and automotive and pharmaceuticals and, and many other sectors are, are, are doing pretty well, but they're held back by a government that isn't supporting them. Um, and, and it's not supporting them for largely ideological reasons. So, you know, we've got we've got a big job of work to do up until the end of that implementation period. Um, a big job of work to do around the government's investment agenda, where, you know, as we were talking about earlier, that, that they've said that they accept the Labour agenda pretty much around the need for more investment. But where is it going to go? You know, is it is it genuinely going to follow those low carbon principles that you know um, are, are necessary? Very unclear about that. What the balance is going to be, in particular between road building and forms of um, more sustainable transport, very unclear what kind of operational decisions will be taken, who's going to be in charge of this, you know, what's the role of bodies like the National Infrastructure Commission going to be in any of this, uh, what time frame will be used. You know, interesting that the, um, 
the rail investment program currently seems to be focused mainly around, um, you know, aside from the, the huge elephant in the room, I guess, which is HS2. But you know, they're they're talking a lot about beaching. Um, reopenings, so you know branch lines. Well, you know that doesn't cost very much, and you can do it pretty quickly. What are they actually going to do in the long run? I mean, they're they're important. We want to see that happen, but we're, we're the larger scale projects. Um, so that I think is a is a big question for the future. Yeah. So I guess moving just a bit beyond the opposition stuff. Mm. In, in in five years' time, when hopefully we have a new Labour government, <laughs> we'll be we'll be outside the EU. Um, we might be in a trade deal with the United States and climate change is going to be even more pressing. What are you going to see as the kind of big economic policy challenges facing any government that wishes to move this country in a more left-wing direction? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're, you're right to suggest that we could be in a very different context. And if we have been signed up to that kind of a trade deal, um, we'll need to know whether it covers... Um, you know, critical issues like in investment, um, what the dispute resolution procedures would be as well. And of course, that's a big issue in relation to the EU deal also, where, you know, the government's talking about a kind of Canada-style deal, which could potentially include investor-state dispute settlement, which I think is very problematic. Um, so we, we need to look at the context that we were in and what wiggle room it afforded us. I mean, I, I was looking before the last election at what kind of room there would be for us to um, have adequate measures against tax havens. Now, we've got a number of, in fact, a very large number of tax treaties with other countries. You know, some of them are extremely problematic for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and actually, it can be relatively tricky to, to change some of them. Um, not as tricky as, as I think some wanted to argue, but you know, that, that would be potentially difficult to deal with. Um, but I still think, you know, even in that context, even if we're circumscribed by some of those, um, you know, multilateral um, or bilateral rules, and if it's not possible to to kind of legally challenge them, you know, I still think there's a huge amount that we would need to be doing. Um, one of the the pieces of work that I thought was was very exciting that um, we released before the election was looking at green finance and what more could be done to, you know, both support the positive developments that are happening in in the city, but really to do um, a huge amount more to um, ensure that there is divestment and that we get rid of this you know kind of brown investment bias that we've got currently and get investment shifting out of dirty assets um, and you know that's that's something that is is desperately needed i think we've just seen some evidence from global witness about also how uk finance has been supporting deforestation as well as um, a fossil fuel industry so you know there, there will be a lot that we can do I think almost kind of well, not regardless of the circumstances but whatever kind of situation we're in of course we could also have had an um, economic um, in fact we're probably likely to have a bit of an economic slowdown depending on what happens in terms of the relationship between China and, and the US trade wise um, yeah so I think we both have a question uh, or each of us have a question about how the Treasury works and how you'd like to see that change. I noticed in your New Statesman article that you talked about the need to sort of decentralise investment decisions. Yeah. And I was wondering what, what you what you envisage that looking like. Does this mean a sort of return to New Labour style regional development agencies or something completely new? Yeah, well we, we um, before the 
last election we asked Bob Kerslake, so John, John McDonnell asked Bob Kerslake, former head of the civil service of course, asked him to look at the operation of the Treasury and how it could be restructured to better promote um, productivity and deal with regional imbalances in the economy. Um, and you know, he made a number of recommendations and I think they're, they're very sensible. Amongst those um, recommendations was ensuring that the Treasury had a much stronger relationship with key regional actors. Um, now, I suppose you do then bump up against questions of um, you know, how those regional actors are institutionalised. Um, I don't sense there's any great appetite for immediate institutional change. What there does need to be, however, immediately, is a complete resetting and a new um, uh, respect, really, for those who have power regionally and locally. And, you know, we, we really haven't seen that at all. When we've had so-called growth deals coming from government, they've been at the say-so of the Treasury. There's, there's not been, you know, really... I mean, there's been a requirement for local authorities to support it. That's the only way that they could then get the money. But, you know, should they really be having this kind of um, master-servant relationship? Um, no. So uh, we, we really will need to change that, I think, for the future. Now, um, we're not the only country that's looking at these questions. Um, in fact, the European Union introduced a, um, a strategic investment fund um, after it was pushed to do so by the Socialists and Democrats and you know it grappled with a number of these questions about how you can get better buy-in from regional actors so I think we can we can learn from that and what's happened in a lot of other countries to really make sure that that regional voice is present. Um, and what do you think a, a kind of a feminist treasury would look like? Oh that's an interesting question um, and one that uh, you know, some terrific people like the Women's Budget Group and others have been looking at. And I think actually in that context, we can look at some of the positive work that was done by previous Labour governments as well. You know, the fact that there wasn't just a rhetorical commitment to doing equality impact assessments, the fact that they were not just done, but they were acted on, that there was a really strong relationship with the women's movements as well, that directly fed into policy. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's a lot that needs to change around that piece um, and, you know, in the same way that we should be carbon testing all of our expenditure uh, and indeed revenue raising, I, sh I should add, um, we also need to be um, testing against equality um, relevant characteristics, our spending and our tax. And, you know, we, we've tried to open up that debate and it's been um, kind of very frustrating that government hasn't been willing to engage. You know, for example, we tried to point out around some of the corporation tax changes that these would overwhelmingly be benefiting um, men and not women because of the, the nature of the economy. Um, and all we got back from the Conservative side was, well, you know, some women are business women, and of course they are. Um, but the critical point is that you can't just take some tax out of the system without having to add on some more somewhere else unless you're going to cut back on public spending. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, there, there needs to be a lot of change, I think, for the Treasury to, um, to look feminist and to behave in a feminist way. And something that has been a big part of Labour's agenda recently, and that I know a lot of people at the Social Review are very interested in, is uh, all the stuff on alternative models of ownership. 
Yeah. Um, I wonder what your view is on the role that should play in Labour's economic agenda going forward and how it should be developed, if it, if it should be developed at all. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it is critical. And, you know, if I look back at where we had issues before the last election, one thing that frustrated me about this agenda was that, um, unfortunately, um, the, the kind of Conservative portrayal of that agenda as backward-looking did gain traction and it became very difficult for us to counteract that and, and rebut it. Um, I think if you look at a sector like energy, however, it's prob probably the, the strongest example of this, well, as well, as, well as, as real to an extent, but if you look at energy, um, we know that there needs to be really radical reform because we are going to have a massively increased demand for electricity in the future as we shift away from fossil fuels. Um, now, just thinking that that is going to be dealt with by a lot more offshore wind um, neglects the fact that you know that, that might help us to deal with some of the current energy load, but it's not going to deal with the the, the requirements into the future with you know increasing use of, of electric cars and everything else. We need to have a decentralised system, one where many communities are generating their own energy as well as having more control over using it. I think there are some really quite exciting radical experiments going on around that. I'm not just saying that because I represent a place where one of those big experiments is going on um, in Oxford where uh, you know we're looking at how you really could decentralise the grid. Now that needs to be happening everywhere and it needs to be happening now if we are really properly dealing with the climate crisis and I think it does need to have you know, a far, far greater extent of public ownership, you know, whether that's community ownership, you know, however it's delivered. Um, but I think actually when people hear about that kind of a model, they're quite excited by it because they can see the potential. You know, on my uh, council estate where I live, we've now taken a number of our council homes off the grid for up to three hours um, in a big loop with our community centre, with solar panels on the homes. Um, you know, people are really excited about that. Um, it's saving them money, uh, which needs to happen because, you know, talking about a lot of people on, on unfortunately, low incomes, um, but it's a really exciting technological project. And I think the kind of promise of that into the future and the, the excitement around that wasn't communicated when we were talking about public ownership. Um, and, you know, we, we need to grapple with that into the future because, you know, we, we can't be in a situation where people are painting us as, you know, just wanting to kind of own and run coal-powered power stations and that is it, full stop, and there's no other change. No, we need to be talking about the green energy system of the future and the potential within that. Um, to shift tone a little bit, um, so you've uh, uh, said that you are backing Keir Starmer to be yeah. leader of the Labour Party. Um, why? Sorry, oh, that, well. sounds, that sounds very accusatory, <laughs> but no, uh, why, why do you think he's the... <laughs> well, we, did, we had our nomination meeting last night, so I won't um, uh, kind of browbeat you with my, um, uh, my, my spiel for that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, to me, one of the most important reasons, you know, aside from, uh, I think, you know, Keir's personal qualities, which, you know, I, I have seen in evidence, you know, I've seen how collaborative and open he is, um, uh, you know, see his, his instincts as, as well, which are socialist and feminist and internationalist. You know, every time that I've worked with him, that's been clear. 
for me, one of the big reasons to um, support them is the fact that, you know, when I've been out and about on the doorstep, not just in Oxford, but in lots of other places as well, lots of places that unfortunately we lost at the time of the last election. When I got into the conversation with people about leadership, which happened a lot, so often people would say to me, if you had somebody like that bloke, what's his name again, Keir Starmer, if you had someone like him, then I might be willing to vote for you, but I'm not now. And I just think we should listen to those people, you know. Mm. Um, and they're, they're people who really, really need a Labour government, and they haven't got one at the moment. And I think also, as well as Keir's values, I think he's the person who has really got the ability to deliver on them and I think he showed that actually with our policy around Brexit, where I think you know it was it was going to be hard for us whichever way we turned. I would have liked us to have become more strongly committed to supporting um, another referendum earlier. But you know, Keir is somebody who plugged that furrow for a very very long time ploughed that furrow rather not plugged it <laughs> uh, and you know he he got there with the support of everybody across the party and of course the party was united in supporting that policy at the time of our conference so you know he's someone who can deliver and, and that's why I, I want to support him. Um, so you uh, started out life as a student activist. Oh gosh, a long time ago, crikey. Um, Tell us a little bit about that and maybe how it's informed your, your time of politics. We were happy you'd have some good stories. Oh, well, well, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's really sweet, although kind of very embarrassing that um, uh, some of the students in my city have unearthed some photographs of me when I was a, uh, a student. And um, goodness, it really does take me back more than 20 years ago. Um, uh, but... Yeah, I, I think it, it, it has impacted on um, my approach to politics. I mean, I, I first got involved um, in that side of things, actually, because of the whole access agenda or lack of it. And I um, did my first degree at Oxford University um, and I came from Aberdeen. I had a lot of friends who were incredibly bright but people who were looking to, for the rest of their lives, do something that I had done part-time, you know, at the same time as a school student, which was washing dishes. Now, back then, you got £2 an hour for washing dishes. Um, and these are people whose potential was just being completely wasted. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of got involved, really, in student politics around more access, you know, particularly for state school pupils, people from non-traditional backgrounds, um, and that then informed, I guess, quite a lot my um, practice when I went into uh, being a teacher and researcher in higher education and eventually I finished my career there working at Aston University where we had a you know, really diverse intake of students, which was fantastic. And, um, you know, again, I think it, it's just absolutely criminal how we still have a situation where we have, you know, incredible resources in the case of Oxford University, for example, and still we don't see those people able to access it who um, demonstratively, you know, are clever enough um, and who would benefit so so much from it. So um, yeah, 
Uh, that's how I got involved that very, very long time ago. <laughs> so do you still feel a certain sort of pride or nostalgia when you see Oxford students do demonstrations or occupations <laughs> like you did back in the day? Well, I mean, recently they've been very active around um, divestment, which I think is really exciting and you know, building new alliances, um, not just in Oxford, but um, you know, across the country and indeed the world around that agenda and highlighting how actions that might be taken by individual colleges or by the university as a whole, by other investors, how they can directly impact on um, you know, the living circumstances of, of people uh, you know, right around the other side of the world. So, you know, I, I think that that, that um, you know, sometimes it's kind of dismissed as, as youthful exuberance, but I think in that case they're, they're quite rightly raising their voices and saying, you know, not in our name and, you know, well done to them. What's your best memory from a demo? Oh crikey! <laughs> uh, I mean, I do, I do sometimes still feel that that it's important to be present at some of those those kind of um, mass events um, and to to speak at them and, and raise my voice. So it's uh, um, I suppose not not something that I would uh, kind of say I'd never be involved with again. I mean, I'm just obviously incredibly privileged that I can now. Um, be in a position, hopefully, to try and use um, the resources of Parliament to, to get to political ends as well. Um, uh, <laughs> I suppose, actually, uh, sometimes it's been very nice to um, be able to take my children to things, and actually, although it, was a, um, it, it wasn't necessarily a very happy event, but I, I've always felt it's extremely pro problematic that we incarcerate people in detention centres um, and you know so often people don't get any information hardly at all from the Home Office about what's going on with the application this kind of thing. We used to have one of those detention centres next to um, where I live in Oxford, it's called Campsfield. Now it's um, one of the centres that's closed. I mean, the, the reason why when it closed we weren't necessarily celebrating was because actually out of all the centres it wasn't, uh, you know, it was one of the ones that was probably better managed than a lot of the other ones and where people had access to quite a lot of support networks um, uh, from the local community but um, uh, at that demonstration um, kind of having my, my children there and then somebody sent me a, a picture actually funnily enough of, um, of Jeremy Corbyn with his children there, one of his children and thinking goodness you know this is something that's gone on for so long, you know, whatever it was, 20 years, finally <laughs> we're seeing at least some change um, and that that was, uh, I suppose, quite moving really, but, you know, obviously, as I said, there's still so much more to be done to deal with it. Yeah. Um, kind of fun, fun question to wrap up, uh, <laughs> what's the most punk rock thing you've ever done? Punk rock? Oh goodness! Well, this is going back to my youth a little bit, I have to say, and uh, yeah, I do, I do quite like a little bit of um, rock. Uh, although I've never, I've, I've never um, kind of performed or anything like that. But uh, uh, quite a lot of my friends did when I was when I was younger. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that. There's a lot of my lifestyle, perhaps sadly, that could now be described as punk rock. You know, it's funny, I, um, uh, I um, have kind of recently got it in a little bit 
to, you know, this thing spinning. Gosh, I sound like a matey saying this thing spinning. But in gyms where you go on a bike, yeah. and you, you know. And um, I really enjoyed it. I was like, oh, this was fantastic. And I was thinking, why did I really enjoy it? And I realised it was because it was in time to dance music. And like, that's the only time when I actually <laughs> hear dance music nowadays. I'm a bit more of a dance music person. Uh, now than than a rock person, so yeah, that's that's probably a little bit sad, but um, I think that's probably the particularly the life of a mum. Yeah, <laughs> oh. my little ones uh, kind of keep me away from that that kind of thing nowadays, unfortunately. Keep you away from the mosh pit. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think we're done. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to to speak to us at Social Review. Well, yeah. thank you, and to anyone who's been listening, thank you very much to you. I feel like I've been a bit indulgent because I've just had the space to, to speak away. So thank you to my kind interviewers as well. I think you might be well. underestimating how nerdy our audience is. Yeah, no, no, there's oh, some bless. real wonks who are, oh. like, rubbing their legs with glee and sort of, you know, discussion of communal ownership uh, oh, models. Oh, bless. Oh, well, well th thanks very much again, listeners. Yeah, <laughs> take care.